Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 46 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in crime in making the world a better place through business, Raj Tasodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, uh, Timothy. Uh, happy Diwali to you and happy Diwali to our guest today. This is one of the big festivals from India. I'm going to make a point tonight of going out and celebrating that with my uh-huh. favorite Northern Indian restaurant nearby. So um, you've inspired me with those comments today. So on that note, why don't you introduce our special guest today? Because he is a very special guest. <laughs> yes, uh, this is a real pleasure for us today to welcome uh, Dr. Shri Kumar Rao uh, to the podcast. Uh, Shri Kumar, as we all fondly call him, is uh, one of the big influences in my life, I would say, at a really formative time. Uh, I met him in 2007, when my life was taking a turn. I I had just uh, published Firms of Endearment. I had discovered this whole other way of being. I had discovered passion and purpose uh, in my work for the first time. And then I read an article in Business Week. And I think it was called Karma Capitalism, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Shri Kumar. It was about a a number of Indian business professors in the U.S. who were bringing the ancient wisdom of India to bear in their teaching of leadership, of management, uh, etc. And Sri Kumar was featured in that. And uh, it also mentioned that he was a professor who had gotten his PhD in marketing at Columbia University, which is what I did. Uh, he had the same advisor that I did a few years before. So he left before I joined, but he had become a marketing professor And like me, at some point, he got a little disillusioned with the whole uh, teaching of marketing and and, and was looking for meaning and purpose. And so started a now very famous course uh, called Creativity and Personal Mastery at Long Island University. And then soon started offering it at Columbia Business School, where it became the most popular course there. There was a long waiting list and you had to apply in order to get in. I remember it was like an 80-page syllabus. So it was... uh, I went and met with Srikumar at his home in uh, Long Island and we spent the day together and, and I said, I'd love to sit in on your course because I was just starting my spiritual exploration at that point. And so every Sunday for the next few months, I would come down from Boston and uh, have a wonderful enlightening day together. And uh, so that was my introduction. So welcome, Srikumar. My Thank pleasure you. entirely, Raj. How well I remember those days. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it was, as I said, quite a revelation to me because I was just starting to get into these things. So please share your journey about what caused you to take that turn or was it just something that was in your childhood that you were reconnecting with? Uh, Actually, it's both, Raj. Uh, What happened is I did my PhD at Columbia Business School, as you know, and uh, I had a corporate career, which was really amazing. I shot up like a rocket. But uh, the other flip side of that was I shot up like a rocket, but I also got burnt out by politics. So I thought I'd go to academia where there is no politics and everybody is imbued with a quest for pure knowledge. (laughs) I found out I was sadly mistaken. I think it was Kissinger who said that the reason the knives are so, so sharp in academia is because the stakes are so small. He hit it on. So then I stagnated. I remember feeling, gee, you know, I've blown it. I thought there'd be no politics and great fulfillment in academe. And that is definitely not true. And in the meantime, my colleagues who remained in the corporate world went on and, you know, made uh, lots of money and rose hierarchically. And I thought, gee, I've blown it all. I had such great education, such a totally wonderful uh, 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 rocket launching pad, and now I've blown it away and I'm ruined. So I was feeling quite down. Uh, all my life, I'd been doing a lot of reading, spiritual biography, mystical bi- autobiography would take me to a wonderful place. And then I came back to the real world and it sucked. 
And I remember thinking, if all of this is useful, only if you're sitting quietly thinking peaceful thoughts, but not when you came to the hurly-burly, then it's useless. But somehow I knew that wasn't true. I knew that this was very valuable. Maybe even the only thing that was valuable, I just hadn't figured out how to make use of it. So one day I got my bright idea, which is why don't I take the teachings of the Wood's great masters, strip them of religious, cultural, and other connotations, and adapt them so that they're acceptable to intelligent people in a post-industrial society. And the thought of doing that made me come alive. So I created that course for me. I needed it for me. I was a marketing guy, so I never pursued an idea unless I thought there was a market for it. And in this case, I was teaching MBAs. We all know what motivates MBAs. I was sure nobody would enroll, but that was fine. If they didn't, wonderful. God bless them. If they did, God bless them even more. But I created that course because I needed it for me. It did well. I moved it to Columbia Business School in 1999, and it exploded. It was the only course at Columbia, which is a university-wide draw. I had students from law school, business school, School of International Public Affairs, journalism, teachers college, you name it. And then it spread by word of mouth. Students from London Business School came to Columbia on exchange and they went back and said, this is a great course, you've got to have it. <laughs> I taught it at Kellogg, I taught it at Berkeley, taught it at Imperial College, and then I spun it out and now I teach it privately. So that's how it happened, Raj. And you were a part of it when I had just spun it out. Yeah. What, what do you think was the uh, the innate appeal of it? Like why it, it hit some kind of a sweet spot, right? There was something yeah. in the culture. That it's was because important. I discovered, and this was a big revelation to me, that all of the problems that I was facing, which I thought were my problems and everybody would laugh, was actually something that everybody is grappling with. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody. Yeah. One of the big flaws of our educational system and particularly of our top business schools, Raj, is the really important questions are not even uh, acknowledged, much less addressed. Mm -hmm. Who am I? What makes me happy? What do I want my legacy to be? How do I show up in the world? Those are not even acknowledged, much less addressed. But in my course, it's a journey of self-exploration. We confront all of these headlong. How can I be happy at work? Do I have to be miserable? Is it worth striving to achieve hierarchical success and uh, make a lot of money? Uh, what is my role in society? How do I feel about my role in society? How does all of this play out in the context of the time that I have to spend at whatever occupation I pick? All hugely important questions. And it's the answer is obviously unique. And I never provide anybody any answers, but I provide them a very powerful framework within which they can analyze their situation and come up with a solution that works for them. There's nothing else like it at any of the schools I taught at, and that explains why it was so popular. Well, you know, been... I still remember the, uh, the, the various exercises that you had us do. So I think as we go through today, I'll bring up some of them. Sure. Talk a little bit about them. I think starting with the mental chatter, I think that's where you start. And you have people for a whole week focus on that and, and, and be observant of what's going on inside their head and then learn how to control that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, mental chatter is an internal monologue uh, rise that we have going on in our heads all the time. In fact, those of you listening to it will now be thinking, do I have mental chatter? What's this? <laughs> and the short answer is yes. You're asking yourself, do I have mental chatter? Is mental chatter. And mental chatter actually determines, it makes the life that we live in. We think we live in a real world, but we don't live in a the real world. We live in a construct. All of us are living in the matrix. Uh, only thing is, there's not a matrix constructed by an alien civilization out to enslave us. We created it with our mental chatter and our mental models. And having created it, we then experience it as we created it. And then we think, oh my God, look what happened to me. Mm -hmm. The Have you heard of the parable of the second arrow, Raj? 
I don't think so. I may have, but I, I don't recall. This though. is a very important lesson. So let me share it with you and your listeners. The Buddha was talking to Ananda, his principal disciple, and he said, Ananda, if an arrow would hit you in the arm, would it not be very painful? Ananda nodded and said, yes, Lord, it would be very painful. And if a second arrow would hit you exactly where the first arrow hit you, would it not be even more painful? Yes, Lord, it would be even more painful. And then the Buddha asked a surprising question. Why then do you shoot the second arrow? Now, I notice you're looking puzzled. So let me explain by means of a story. There was a mother and a very good mother, and she had a son who turned 16 and got, a provisional, got his provisional driver's license. And one day he comes up to her and says, hey, Ma, I've got to go to uh, meet some friends of mine. And, uh, I want to take the car. And she said, no, you just got your life. How can you take the car? He said, no, no, Mom, you don't understand. I have to take the car. It's important for them to know that you know, I have a car. He said, no, no, you know, where do you have to go? I'll drop you. No, Mom, it's important for me to take the car. It's very important for you not to be there. They said, okay, if I'm not there, there's Uber. There's no, no, mom, you don't, you're not getting it at all. I have to have the car. You have to not be there. And the mother said, no, but you know how kids are. He begged, he pleaded, he wheedled and bit by bit. She felt as little giving way. You're not going to drink. No, no, no drink. You'll call. Yes, I'll call. You'll be back by 10 o'clock. Yes. So reluctantly, she gives him the car keys. And of course, once he gets the car keys, he totally forgets his promises, stays up late, doesn't call, has too many beers. On the way back is a serious accident. His mother was in the hospital as he was being operated on. And when they wheeled him out to the recovery room, she dashed home to have a quick shower so she could go back. And at that time, her friend called. The friend said, how could you possibly let him drive the car? You're not a mother, you're a murderer. You'd be shocked probably that a friend would say something like this at such a juncture, but you'd be much less shocked if I told you it wasn't what a friend told her, it's what she told herself. That is the second arrow. It's bad enough being in the situation where your son is you know, being operated on. Does it make better, better to tell yourself you're a terrible mother, maybe even a murderer? Obviously not. We do it all the time. The important thing about the second arrow is the second arrow is always delivered by means of mental chatter. Mm. Let me repeat that. The second arrow is always delivered by means of mental chatter. And in my coaching practice, if I could get the clients I'm working with to stop at the second arrow, they'd be way ahead of the game. By the time I get to them, they're already in their fifth, sixth, 200 arrows. Any situation that you're confronting, your mental chatter about that situation makes it at least in order of magnitude worse. That's how important this concept is. Can you convert that to positive mental chatter? Is there an affirming way? Because it's kind of hard. There is an affirming way, and a big part of my course actually consists about that. You first recognize you've got mental chatter. You then recognize that you have mental chatter, which takes you to places you don't want to go. And you can introduce mental chatter, which will get you to where you want to go. But eventually, when you're on the spiritual quest, you recognize that what mental chatter itself is the problem. And you can't get rid of it volitionally, but you can come to the point where by recognizing it, you don't allow yourself to be swayed. And the less attention you pay to it, the more it uh, really attenuates and atrophies. And one day it's gone. That is the state of the great sages. You know, the people who have attained realization since Francis, St. Francis of Assisi, you know, Anthony de Mello, Ramana Maharshi, the great sages, that is what they've been telling us all along. Mm. But until you get to the point where it's gone, you might as well enjoy it. So then, Raj, yes, it is possible to direct your mental chatter. You can't control it overtly but you can kind of manipulate it and make it more of a friend than an enemy. Mm -hmm. And a big part of my courses are devoted to helping people uh, make that transition. One of the other things that you talk about that really stuck with me was the parable of good thing, bad thing, who knows, right? We're <laughs> so quick to label what happens in our life and put it into one bucket or the other. Uh, but as, as we learned in your course, that is a mistake. And very often you can have the opposite outcomes. 
Absolutely. In fact, there are so many examples of that. You know, I've met people years, decades after they've taken CPM and they've said, you know, this is the most important thing I got out of your course. And it actually comes from an ancient Sufi parable where it talks about a man and his son and uh, they lived in a valley and they were very poor, but they were very happy. But the man got sick and tired of being poor and he decided he was going to become a wealthy man and he was going to do that by breeding horses. So he bought a stallion. He didn't have enough money to buy a stallion, so he borrowed heavily from his neighbors. And the very day he got the stallion, it kicked the top bar loose from the paddock where he housed it and ran away. And the neighbors came around saying, you were going to become a rich man, but your stallion has run away and you, you still owe us money. You are screwed. And the man shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows. That stallion fell in with a group of wild horses and they were close to where the man lived and he was able to entice them into his paddock, which he had repaired, so escape was no longer possible. So all of a sudden he had a stallion back plus about a dozen wild horses. And by the standards of that village, that made him a wealthy man. The neighbors came around and said, we thought you were destitute, but fortune has smiled upon you. How lucky you are. And he shrugged his shoulders and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows. So the man and his son started to break the horses so they could sell it on the market. And one of the horses threw the man's son and stomped on his leg and it broke and it healed crooked. And the neighbors came around and said, he was such a fine young lad and now he'll never be able to find a girl to marry him. How sad. And the man shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows. But that summer, the king of the country declared war on a neighboring country and press gangs moved to the villages, rounding up all the able-bodied young men to serve in the army. But this man's son was spared because he had a game leg. The neighbors had tears in their eyes. And this, we don't know if we'll ever see our sons alive again, but you still have your son, how lucky you are. And he said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? And it goes on like that forever. So I invite persons to my program to say, look back on your life and can you recollect any instance when something happened that at the time it happened, you said, this is bad, this is terrible. But looking back upon it now, you can say, hey, that wasn't so bad after all, or even that was a good thing. And everybody can recall some instance. I've had dozens and dozens of persons give me that. I remember I had one person who was uh, who was the owner of a tech firm and there was a contract he particularly wanted to get and he bid very hard for that and he didn't get it. A competitor got it and he thought the competitor had used somewhat uh, misleading, uh, if not unethical means to get that. So he was uh, disappointed, but he went on with life and six months later, the client that he was trying to woo was indicted for major fraud and went bankrupt, leaving his competitor with several hundred thousand dollars of uncollectible uh, receivables. You never know. So here is the thing. If something happened to you in your life that at that time you thought was bad, but now you can look back and say it wasn't so bad or maybe even was good. Is there the possibility that whatever you're today about to label bad could in X years be a good thing? Is it possible? Merely asking that question will move you to a different emotional domain. And if you then take the next step, what can I do proactively to make it a good thing? And you move seamlessly from the realm of despair to the realm of possibility. That's how you become incredibly resilient. Nothing ever phases you because you never label anything that happens to you in adversity. You just label it, this happened. Now, how can I make use of it? Oh, very powerful lessons <clears throat> that, uh, that, that stay with you. Uh, do you find any differences uh, between the executives you work with and the students or between people in in the UK or different parts of uh, the US, etc. Or... That's a wonderful question. I found that everybody, see, to begin with, you can't take my course on a whim. So you can't say, gee, that sounds interesting. Let me put my hat in. In order to get into my course, even when I was teaching at business school, you have to apply. You, you know, you've seen that application process and then uh, many times I require interviews. So people are pretty committed by the time they get in. And that is true at business schools and out. But what I find 
now that I've spun it out of business schools, so people still have to do that. Plus, they also have to pay a substantial amount to be a part of the course. So they're very, very, very serious. And it's only when they think, yes, you know, this is a problem in my life and I need this. I find that they are much, much more dedicated. And one of the beauties is the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. So I find that since I spun it out of business school, the people are older, they had more of the battering that life gives every one of us. They recognize the value of what I'm offering much more and they are more dedicated. Therefore, they get a whole lot more. So right now in an average class, I'd say everybody has at least one major breakthrough. Quite a few will say this completely transformed every aspect of my life. And you have a vibrant uh, alumni community uh, yep. that uh, is very active online. And I believe also, at least before the pandemic, there were retreats being held uh, in multiple locations. We used to have annual retreats. Obviously, that came to a halt because of the pandemic. And uh, we won't start it this year for sure, but perhaps next year. So, so I'm curious, you've been now teaching the course for 21 years, 22 years. And Correct. obviously, things evolve and change. What, what are the things that have most evolved and changed in how you approach the course? over the time that you've been running it. Okay. So what happened is, as I mentioned to you, mentioned to you I started this course because it was part of my journey of growth. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was teaching it at business school, I was very interested in helping people have less stress in their life. I used to, because it was at business school, I had an entire module on how do you, how do you get a job, how do you interview, how to get ahead in your job and career and so on, uh, which were relevant in business schools, but I don't teach those modules anymore because they're not relevant to the audience I have now, which is mainly entrepreneurs, senior executives and professionals. Mm. But I'm focusing much more on these, much more overtly on your spiritual journey. Mm. You know, where is it taking you? Do you have the sense? Do you ask yourself, what is this all about? Why am I here? Where am I going? Why am I going? And how does that fit into what I do for a living? So I focus much more on those aspects of it than I always did that, but much more so now than I did when I was teaching at business schools. And therefore, the people who resonate with that, somehow or other, they seek me out, they find me. Mm. And we talk about, yes, you know, I want to go out and uh, all of my clients are very successful and they not only are they very successful, but they want to become even more so. They want to have a lasting impact on the world outside. Uh, in the words of Steve Jobs, they want to make a dent in the universe. Mm. But how does that fit in with, I also have uh, a spiritual bent and, you know, it's not about the money and uh, we're all going to die one day. So how does the two of them fit in? And many of them think that there is some kind of a conflict in the two. And uh, I help them see that there is no conflict. They're making a dent in the universe is their spiritual path. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. And as you say that, um, you know, there's this whole idea that's evolved that um, around leadership development in a sense, this idea of adult development and that people are at quote unquote different levels of their adult development and journey. And, you know, what you've already hinted at a little bit that the people who find their way to me, you know, by definition are a self-selecting group. Yes. Um, and yet I'm also curious, what, what is your observation about this notion of, um, about adult development and how that relates to the broader question of, of developing leaders who can be at the top of an organization. Yeah, this is where my, my conception of leadership is mm -hmm. somewhat different. So let me share my leadership philosophy with you. And I have a document on this, by the way, which I'll be happy to send you. And if you want to share it with your listeners, feel great. free. Uh, I feel that anybody who wants to be an inspiring leader is pretty well advanced on the wrong path. 
Because when you want to be an inspiring leader, it's all about you. I want to be an inspiring leader. And what you're really saying, and I'm being deliberately provocative here, what you're really saying is I want people to do what I would like them to do, mm. which perhaps they don't want to do. So I've got to figure out how to get people to do what I want them to do when they don't want to do what I want them to do, which means I've got to figure out how to manipulate them, which mm. is not a very nice thing to do. In my book, being an inspiring leader is not an aspirational goal. It's a byproduct. Mm. You have to be personally inspired by a grand vision, a vision that brings a greater good to a greater community. Something to which you can subsume, if not your whole life, at least a big chunk of it. Mm. And when you find such a cause, and you can anchor yourself in it and you learn to communicate it well, you become an inspiring leader by default because anybody who comes in touch with you cannot help but be inspired. So, uh, so it's like, you know, Mahatma Gandhi, he didn't set out to be a great leader. You know, when he was working in South Africa, he said the passport laws are unjust and I will not let them stand. And he happened to be a British trained attorney and he had verbal skills and he was fluent. So he used whatever talents he had to muster support for the passport laws are unjust and I will not stand there, let them stand. And later on, when he came to India, he said, we've got to have, get rid of the colonial masters. And in the process of doing that, he did in fact become an inspiring leader who 70 years after his assassination is still held in enormous regard worldwide but he never set out to be an inspiring leader. You become an inspiring leader because you're personally inspired by a grand vision. And when you learn to communicate that vision effectively, you become an inspiring leader by default. So Shikumar, one of those inspiring leaders that you connected me to is Bob Chapman. Yes, uh, indeed, yes. That story very much applies to Bob. You know, things happened yeah. to him that broadened his perspective opened his heart, redefined what his uh, role was as a leader. Um, what are some other leaders that you put in that category that you think today are uh, inspiring through their vision and through their actions? Uh, lots of them are small entrepreneurs, uh, Raj. And, uh, you know, like I want some of my coaching clients now, for example, one of them is a small firm, branding firm, that's won a lot of awards. And through the entire pandemic, the uh, CEO took a salary cut, but didn't lay off anybody, didn't uh, cut any salaries, simply because this is the right thing to do, we believe. So that's a small example, but there are lots of people like that in uh, the entrepreneurial space where people are genuinely thinking, what is my role and how do I play that? Unfortunately, with the exception of Barry Ray Miller and Bob Chapman, I don't see uh, that kind of a sign that I could point to at any of our larger corporations. Doesn't mean it isn't there. Uh, it's just that I'm not aware of them. Well, I'm, I'm curious because you've touched on something when you get into the corporate America bit. I mean, there are billions of dollars now being spent on this idea of leadership development and we can develop leaders and uh, Jeffrey Pfeiffer at Stanford wrote a good book, Leadership Bullshit, <laughs> excuse my language. But he basically was saying, for all this money, are we really truly developing leaders? And, you know, you've just sort of challenged that a little bit. I'm wondering, okay. what, what's the gap? What are we missing in corporate America that, that is not getting us to those kinds of inspiring leadership outcomes? I guess we're emphasizing the wrong things in the majority mm. of uh, lessons, I've, uh, majority of leadership, quote unquote, classes, trainings, sessions I've been in. It's more communicated as a set of techniques. Mm. Uh, you know, any action you take, how would you feel if it appeared in the headlines of the New York Times tomorrow? So don't do that. Uh, before you get, when you're really angry, before you say count up to 10, you know, it's stuff like that. And I go, go much deeper. Who are you as a human being? How do you want to show up? Why do you want to show up? Let me give you a, a 
part of my philosophy. Every manager, every leader, I guess somewhere uh, when a manager becomes a leader, I guess changes depending upon how many people report to that. But let's assume that you have, uh, you know, a leader, quote unquote, is CEO of a major corporation, has three, four hundred thousand people uh, in his organization. He wants to develop all those people. But underlying all of that is I want to develop all of them. I want to make them good at what they're doing because then they will perform effectively. If they perform effectively, then I meet my numbers. And if I meet my numbers, then great things happen to me in stock options and all the rest of that the good mm. business press and so on. So that's why I want them to. You're using people as mechanisms. Mm. You want people to develop, to become better human beings. You want to help them raise the level of consciousness simply because that's the kind of person you are. And if your business flourishes as a result of that, so much the better. In fact, your job as a leader is to arrange the systems and processes of your business so that as the individual flourishes, so does the business. And that's where you put your focus on. Well, the intent is very important, Tim. Why are you doing it? Yeah. And you will find that in most big companies, you always think of people as uh, a mechanism for you mm. to achieve something. Yeah. And people are not stupid. They always sense that. Yeah. He wants me to learn this because, you know, if I learn this, I'll be more effective and therefore uh, you know, I'll save time, I'll beat my numbers, stuff like that. Yeah. People don't respond very well to that. And I think among the millennial generation and Generation Z, they're cutting the bullshit, seeing and exposing the bullshit much faster. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think that often when Raj and I are talking about conscious leadership or conscious cultures, at least one of the things we say is that the secret superpower is that if people can feel that their work has meaning and that the company or the leader cares about them, uh -huh. those two conditions are met. That's when you're going to get the best out of people yeah. because there's a sense of meaning and a sense of caring. And I what, think it, what I've discovered works in a company, and I'm not original in thinking that. Chris Argyris uh, laid that out a long time ago, is there has to be a sense of justice mm. and a, a competence and uh, fairness. Mm. Mm. When you have that, you find that you are going to be engaged and you're engaged because every human being is interested it's not that you know let me ask you a question you're starting a new job on monday do you go to the new job thinking gee i can't wait for six months from now when i you know looking at the clock wishing for five o'clock on friday so i can run out of here or no you're starting a new job you're all enthusiastic you're going to change the world and over time, you become the disgruntled cock watcher that you have. Something happened. It could be a failure at many levels in selection, processing, training, mission. But I maintain that your job as a leader is not, a fine, not to motivate people, mm. but to find out what is demotivating them and systematically get rid of them. Get rid of them, get it's it out of the way. It's not the same thing. It's a completely different approach. Mm. You don't motivate people. People are inherently motivated. You find out what is demotivating them and systematically get rid of them. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, <clears throat> let's touch upon some of the other lessons from your course, Shikumar. There are two that are kind of related, which you say living in an other-centered universe. Mm -hmm. uh, and then cultivating gratitude and appreciation. Mm -hmm. And I remember you had Nipun Mehta, I think, was it? Uh, at the yes. <laughs> you met embodiment of that giving uh, mindset and then the impact that that has on people. So could you talk a little bit about the power of those ideas? Sure. Let's begin with appreciation and gratitude. We spend an enormous amount of time focusing on the two, three or four things that are wrong in our lives. 
more precisely in the two, three or four things that we think are wrong in our lives and totally ignoring the 40, 50, 200 things which are pretty damn good about our lives. Look, right now, you and all of the members who are going to be listening to this podcast don't have to worry about, am I going to have dinner tonight? Do I have a bed to sleep in? Do I have a roof over my head? You take all of that for granted. Yet we both know that any one of these is a big deal in a big chunk of the world outside, right? Mm. But we take all of that for granted. We don't pay attention to that. Why is that? It's because our awareness is like a flashlight. Think about it. What does a flashlight do? It, illumin it illuminates whatever you shine it on. Shine it on the ceiling, it lights up the ceiling. Shine it on the floor, you brighten up the floor. So what do we do with this flashlight of awareness? We shine it on all the things that we have decided are wrong in our lives. And the many things which are really damn good about our lives, ignore it completely so it passes by the background. You know, this is a very powerful concept. I'm going to demonstrate it to you right now. I want to take the flashlight of your awareness and shine it on the chair in which you're sitting. Hmm. Do that. The moment I do that, you become aware of the pressure of your buttocks on the seat of the chair. You feel the fabric or the leather against the back of your thigh, correct? Mm -hmm. 30 seconds ago, you were not aware of any of this, but now you are. Why? Because you've shown the flashlight of your awareness on it. So what I do is I encourage my coaching clients and my students to shine the flashlight of your awareness on the many ways in which you're truly blessed. Mm. Yeah, you have to pay a lot in taxes. Be grateful that you have an income on which taxes are due. It's not that difficult a concept. It's just something that you have to do conscientiously. And when you do that, and I always advocate doing it last thing at night before you go to bed. When you get up in the morning, don't go immediately to the place of, oh my God, there's too much to do and I don't have enough time to do it all. Take the flashlight of your awareness and shine it on the many ways in which you are truly blessed and fortunate. And as you keep doing it, you come into the emotional domain of appreciation and gratitude. And it is my hope that everybody listening to this comes into the default emotional domain of appreciation and gratitude. And there's a very simple reason for that. When you're in that domain, you're not angry, you're not nervous, you're not anxious, you're not fearful. The two cannot coexist. Beautiful. And then the other one, as I said, was living in an other-centered universe. Yeah. We think that the world revolves around us. Galileo and Copernicus got into a <laughs> considerable amount of trouble a few years ago, a few centuries ago, because they postulated that perhaps the sun does not move around the earth, perhaps the earth moves around the sun. We think the earth moves around us. Look at it, no matter what happens, how quickly you have the ability to transfer it into, what's the impact on me? Your spouse gets a great job offer and you immediately think, how is this going to affect our relationship? Your daughter drops out of school to begin an in-depth exploration of controlled substances. And you go, is rehab covered by insurance? Or what will they think of my parenting? No matter what happens, we have an incredible capacity to bring it down to what's the impact on me. And the point is that if, that's what I call being in a me-centered universe. And if that's where you live, you are going to live an essentially mediocre existence punctuated with flashes of pleasure, treasure, uh, punctuated with flashes of pleasure. The only way you're going to step out of that is if you, if you can find a cause which is bigger than you are, a cause which brings a greater good to a greater community. Remember what I talked about, my philosophy of leadership? When you find such a cause which brings a greater good to a greater community and you can embed yourself in that because that is the kind of person you are, then you will slip over into a life of meaning and purpose. And you find that you are acting not out of your narrow self-interest, 
but for a bigger cause. And that is its own reward in terms of the well-being that permeates you. That is one of the reasons why Gandhi was such a great leader, irrespective of his faults. So there are many people who quibble about his political actions, and he was a politician. But the one area in which I don't think anyone can hold a match to him, any political figure can hold a match to him, is he was able to get an enormous number of people, millions upon millions of people, to think beyond their narrow self-interest. Mm. In that respect, he's worthy of emulation. Well, one of the things I want to I want to bring up is that uh, when Raj and I wrote the book, the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide, in uh, in chapter sixteen, when we talk about raising your consciousness as a leader, you were kind enough to allow us to take some of your work, and there's a whole section in there called Personal Mastery Exercises that will take you through the five things that, uh, that Raj has brought up. And I think that's a great little taster to the main course, which is then to reach out Sukumar and the Rao Institute and to hear more there. So maybe just quickly do a, uh, a little bit of a, like if people want to know more about this and the work that you're doing, where can they go? How can they find out more about uh, it? The best way is for them to come to theraoinstitute.com. <clears throat> uh, the There's a ton of material in there, including the syllabus that Raj mentioned, which is now up to almost a hundred pages. Mm -hmm. uh, there are tons and tons of videos. There is a blog section where I, uh, write a blog every day and there's a couple of years worth or more of blogs in there. So that'll give a very good feeling for who is this guy. And uh, I got a simple rule. If you find, what I do is I ask everybody to read my syllabus. And if they find that they resonate with the syllabus, then they absolutely should make it a point to uh, take my program or talk to me about personal coaching or something. And if they find that they do not resonate with the syllabus, what I offer is probably not for them at this stage. So it's both a screening mechanism and an invitation. Because I've had people who said, oh my God, I started reading your syllabus and I couldn't put it down. <laughs> Those are the persons I want to talk to. So we asked there are many of our guests this, so I'm going to ask you this. If, if, if we gave you a magic wand and tomorrow you could wave that magic wand and, um, you know, fast forward where we're going and how we, you and your group can have a bigger impact, what would you, what would you ask for with your, or what would you do with your magic wand or your... I guess I would invite people to think about I know I'm only here for a finite amount of time. Anything that I gather will be stripped from me. The only thing I don't know is when that'll happen. Mm -hmm. And have that consciousness present every day, as opposed to someday when I get ill or sick, I'll think about it. And therefore, recognizing that I am actually an entity, having a spiritual entity, having a human experience, what can I do? to make it the best human experience I can. And if they start seriously asking that question, a lot of the, quote, societal problems, unquote, we face will simply disappear. You know, Sukumar, one of the few of the realizations I've had uh, recently as I've been actually working on a memoir and thinking about my life, and one is that Trauma is really much more widespread than we realize that there's almost an epidemic of trauma that everybody has it. Life is difficult. Life is traumatic in many ways, but we, we tend to sweep them under the carpet. We tend to minimize them. We say, well, other people have much worse trauma, but I believe we all have some degree of post-traumatic stress injury, if not a disorder. And if we don't heal from that, then we are very reactive, right? We get hijacked emotionally and we react in ways we don't even realize. Uh, does that figure into any of your work, recognizing and addressing? Because if you don't oh, resolve and feel them. The human yeah. condition is a veil of suffering, uh, Raj. And we are very fond of saying, 
I suffer because this happened to me, whatever the this is. But in actual fact, that's not true. We suffer because we have a very rigid view of this is the way the universe should be and the universe is not playing ball with us. Mm-hmm. I thought I should get promoted, but actually I got fired. This is terrible. So you have a vision of the universe where you don't get fired, you get promoted, you get regular increases and all the rest of that, the universe isn't cooperating. The more you hold on to your rigid way of expecting the universe to unfold, the more you will be buffeted and the more you will suffer. But if you can get to the point where you recognize I do not have control, I never had control, I never will have control and whatever the universe gives me is fine. If I don't like it, I will change it, try to change it, but I will try to change it with the full knowledge of I'm making my effort but whether it'll work out or not, who knows? Then you'll find every day becomes a blast because here's the mistake all of us make, Raj. We think that the benefit of setting a goal and trying to change the universe to conform the way we want it to be is to succeed in that endeavor. Wrong. The benefit of setting, of setting out on such a journey is the learning and growth that happen in you and to you as you try your level best. If you succeed, fantastic. If you don't succeed, the learning and growth have already happened, so you're ahead of the game. It's a no-lose proposition. You apply that to life. Invest in the process. Do not invest in the outcome. The outcome is unknowable beyond your control but invest in the process. And when you do that, you will find that the journey becomes a joy. And the journey is really the only thing you have. The journey is with you always. The destination is a mirage. You get there, you tarry a few minutes and you're off somewhere else. The journey is with you always. Enjoy the journey. And one of the other realizations that I had was, you know, I've thought back, I lost both my parents a couple of years ago. And I thought back to the uh, the passing of my grandfather and my father, you know, who were patriarchs, very tough in many ways. And what I saw at their passing was not a lot of grief, but a certain kind of relief that a lot of people experience, especially with my grandfather. You know? And then when my mother passed, the outpouring of grief was overwhelming, right? And it got me thinking, like, what's going to happen at the end of your life? What will, what will be the predominant emotions that people are going to experience? And that kind of is a sobering uh, thought, right? If uh, the thought that people will feel relieved that you're gone versus actual genuine grief. And how do we live so that actually it's, I think Kabir said, when we come into this life, when we cry, other people laugh. And when we leave this life, we should be laughing and other people should be crying. Very true. Now you have your uh, books uh, that I would strongly recommend. Are you ready to succeed? Uh, the first one, and then happiness at work. That's correct. We also have a program on uh, on discovering your purpose. What's what's that one called? Uh, it's purpose. called the Personal Mastery Program, and it's offered by Sounds True. Mm-hmm. And then you also recommended a lot of books to us when we took the course. Many of which were, I mean, I think Autobiography of a Yogi was on there. Uh, are there other books that are on the top of They're your... They're in the syllabus, and anybody who goes to my website can... Uh, uh, download the syllabus and read it. And I would strongly urge anybody here, there's a section in the syllabus called life-changing books. So order all of them and have them lying around. They'll cost three or $400 maybe, but uh, they're truly profound books. Hmm. Now there is an interesting question. Is there one book that you've gifted more than any other? When you think back on it and you you look at all those books, is there one that you've like really like, okay, this is my, on this occasion special, I'm giving it to you besides your own. <laughs> I'm going to give you three books. Beautiful. I'm going to give you Awareness by Anthony DeMello. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give you The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give you Be As You Are by David Gottman, which is a compilation of the teachings of Ramana Maharshi. Ah, beautiful. That's, that's, that's beautiful. Thank you. 
And as you look out over the next three to five years, where do you see your organization going or your work going with the Institute? That's a very good question, uh, uh, Tim. And I am going to tell you that I drink my old Kool-Aid and I honestly don't know. Uh, recently, I have started conversations with an entrepreneur who is absolutely convinced that the work that I do has tremendous, tremendous application in the corporate arena. Mm. And uh, he asked me why it's not uh, better known there. And I told him the truth, which is I know it has a lot of application. Mm. But in order to do that, you have to do things which I find distasteful. Talk to people, send out proposals, constantly be telling them what it is, uh, set up benchmark studies so they can compare. All of that mm. stuff needs to be done. I'm just not going to do it at my stage in life. At which point his eyes lit up and said, that's exactly what I would love to do if you would uh, permit me. So we're in conversation. So let's see how that works out. If it works out and uh, it becomes hugely successful, fantastic. If it pitters out as so many such initiatives have, that's fine too. So whatever happens is fine. Mm. Lovely. What a great way to end it. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. It. It's been wonderful talking to you, Tim. It's wonderful talking to you, Raj. Okay. And thank you to our listeners for listening today. And whatever podcast channel you were listening on, please feel free to hit the subscribe button. And if you have any thoughts or comments, please go over to Apple Podcast and leave us a ranking, a rating. And if you want to know more about some of the things we've talked about today, then please read the book that Raj and I co-authored, The Conscious Capitalism Field Guide. And as I mentioned, in Chapter 16, there's a, a section on all of this, and that would be a wonderful taster for you. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Shikamar. 